Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Wendy Pullman, who's Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University. Her research interests include comparative politics of the Middle East, social movements, conflict processes, emotions, the political effects of immigration, and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So we have a few papers. I mean, you've been doing a lot of work in this area. A few papers on the Syrian conflict. Um, but before we go into the details of the paper, um, I, I want to ask you sort of get the timeline. Uh, a lot of people may not be really familiar with uh, what went on in Syria for the past thirty years. I remember when they, when I was at Northwestern, as I mentioned in the mid 80s, uh, sitting in the sitting at tech as an engineering school, uh, I had a, a very close friend from Lebanon. Uh, he was a math genius and I was struggling with some of the nasty mathematics and he was helping me. But in between those those things, um, I remember our conversation sort of drifted into into Lebanon and Syria. I don't know much about uh, that area at all. Um, but if you if you sort of rewind time back a little bit so the current regime started if i if i remember correctly like 2001 or so well yeah let me let me take it back a bit a bit further than that so um as as you said in your introduction i'm a political scientist focusing on the comparative politics of the middle east i've written three books on the arab israeli conflict and palestinian politics and for the past 10 years or so have been focusing largely on on Syria although as a bit of a generalist you know we we get our hands in the rest of the region as well so um Syria emerged like other countries in the Levant from the Ottoman Empire after the Ottoman Empire collapsed in the first world war Syria became a mandate or essentially a colony under France gained its independence from France in the 1940s um and then many people look at Syria as a during that that period from the late 40s 50s 60s that there was um a lot of social change um uh, uh, sort of mechanization of of agriculture socioeconomic ferment the 
rise of different sorts of political movements, um, some with radical ideologies that challenged a sort of uh, aristocratic kind of elite that had had um, been uh, had economic and political power in the country for 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 many decades. Um, and among those movements was the Ba'ath Party, the same Ba'ath Party we know that also came to rule in Iraq, that had an ideology of um, Arab nationalism, of uh, socialism, uh, of a kind of a secular view of calling all Arabs, regardless of their religious background, to come together and unite um, uh, in that kind of ideology. So the the, the Ba'ath Party gained, um, gained power and uh, and came to power in Syria um, in 1963, seizing power then. Um, and then there were various sort of internal squabbles within the Ba'ath Party from 1963 onward. And then one uh, general within the Ba'ath Party uh, eventually was able to, uh, in a bloodless coup d'etat, seize power. And his name was Hafez al-Assad, seizing power in 1970. And um, if you look at the rulers in Syria from the 50s and 60s, you see many different, uh, a lot of ferment and, and instability that then ends when Assad takes power in 1970 and establishes a very strong single party security authoritarian regime, centralizing power in his person, um, putting loyalists in key positions in the security forces and in the army, um, having uh, an important role for loyalists from his own religious community, um, the Alawite minority in Syria, but also very much making uh, ties and alliances across the ethnic religious mosaic of Syrians, various um, various groups, including with the the, the um, usually regarded as being sort of traditionally Sunni bourgeoisie of, of, of Aleppo and, and Damascus, especially. So what's um, the population of Syria at that point? I'm sorry? What's, what's the population of Syria at that point? Uh, I, I have to say I don't know. Okay. Uh, it's yeah. sort of the demographic split. Um, and so if you look at the Syrian population, how do they split? I mean, there are Christians there too, right? Uh, yeah, and the truth is, and perhaps I misspoke in, in in quickly emphasizing the sectarian element because it's not, I would say, the most the most critical element to, to emphasize. Really, it it shouldn't be overshadowed by class dynamics, by security dynamics, by the structure of the state. So, as I was saying, the Assad regime created this sort of strong authoritarian regime that managed to rule um, from 1970 onwards. It faced um, increasing opposition in the late 1970s and early 80s that really culminated in, in what's regarded as an armed insurrection by offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood um, that took over entire neighborhoods of the town of Hama. Um, the regime sent in tanks and troops and flattened entire neighborhoods of Hama, um, killed tens of thousands of people, and thereafter created really solidified a kind of regime of, of fear and, and silence. Uh, there were ubiquitous security forces, covert informants, and really ruled by an iron iron hand thereafter. Hafez died in the year 2000 and his son Bashar assumed the presidency. Um, so Bashar al-Assad then came to power in the year 
in the year 2000. Um, he wasn't first in line. It was regarded that his brother Basil would, would assume the presidency, but he then died in the mid-1990s in a car crash, and Bashar came to power. He was a young, um, educated head of state, an ophthalmologist who had been trained in Britain. Many thought that he would be a reformer. He presented himself as a reformer. In those first 10 years of Bashar's realm, um, the first Many would say the most sort of important thing to, to um, focus on is that there were massive changes in the economic space in, in, in Syria, that there was a shift from a more state-dominated socialist economy to a more free market, neoliberal economy that in many ways opened new spaces for conspicuous corruption. There were all sort of regime cronies, people close to the president, including his cousin, became filthy rich in this privatizing space, and many Syrians saw their, their lives get worse as subsidies and services just sort of withdrew in this sort of increasingly privatized economy. That takes us up to 2011 and the eve of the Arab Spring. So, so in some sense, he started off good with the economic changes that he made, right? I understand that he was really young and they had to actually amend the constitution to get him in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, I mean, the, the Syrian constitution at the time said the president had to be 40 years of age. Bashar was 34. Um, the kind of rubber stamp parliament basically met and changed the constitution at Hafez's death so, so Bashar could take over. But I wouldn't say that the economic changes were positive. In fact, most would actually say that they were, were not positive. Not to say that the, the, the market is always bad, but when there was privatization in a space without rule of law, without accountability, with endemic corruption, in a space in which those who had connections could abuse their power without limits, and those who had no connections were sort of, you know, uh, powerless to defend themselves. Um, you could wind up with a kind of klepto, you know, kleptocracy of a kind of mafia in which those who were politically connected um, uh, became very, very wealthy at the expense of the overwhelming majority of Syrians, such that economic grievances on top of basic demands for freedom, for human rights, um, for some protections, for some freedoms, um, were were a part of the the um, the grievances that fueled people to go out into the streets in 2011. So it's free market in country clubs, so to speak. Uh, not, not quite free market. Yeah, and free market, free is probably not even the right word, but you can say privatized from a from a, from from. You know, in the early years of, of the Ba'ath Party had a socialist ideology, and in, in Hafez's, you know, first uh, decades, there were um, increasing uh, a redistribution, a certain, a certain degree of redistribution of wealth, subsidized education, of health, of of services to the countryside, um, an infrastructure that that under Hafez's time or Bashar's time sort of began to wane, but then in, under Bashar as well, there was sort of a rise of a new middle class that had some access to new kinds of luxuries that hadn't been there, sort of a new kind of consumerism, fancy coffee shops, you know, cell phones and things. So there was a lot of socioeconomic change, but the political change that, that many Syrians hoped Bashar would bring, reform that lightened the boot of the security forces on people's necks, that offered more space for freedom of speech, for freedom of association, for maybe even alternative political parties, for meaningful elections. Absolutely none of that 
None of that was forthcoming. The regime remained as authoritarian um, as it had been. Mm. In, in terms of people having some real pop space for popular participation and accountability in meaningful elections and political competition. Right, right. So, so you have a number of papers here. So I want to start with one of our older papers um, from 2016, mm -hmm. Narratives of Fear in Syria. Um, you say scholarship on Syria has traditionally been limited by researchers' difficulty in accessing the reflections of ordinary citizens due to their reluctance to speak about politics. Um, the 2011 revolt I uh, talked about opened exciting opportunities by producing an outpouring of new forms of self-expression, as well as encouraging millions to tell their stories for the first time. So you say I explore what we can learn from, the, from greater attention to such data based on um, descriptive analysis of original interviews with 200 Syrian refugees. So, I mean, we see this in a lot of different places, right? Um, people are generally reluctant. Uh, I mean, there is a risk management question for most people to jump into the fray. Um, but uh, so, so you don't really get a lot of data. And the 2011 revolt that you talk about, that is the uh, Arab Spring um, process. Okay, so, so, so what do you find here as you interview, get more information from the Syrian refugees? Yeah, so um, so what we were talking about before really sort of set the scene of, of authoritarian Syria. And then in 2011, as we know, there began to be protests in Tunisia, which forced the president to resign and protests in, in Egypt and this, this sort of regional wave that became the Arab Spring. And it happened in Syria as well, that there were demonstrations in which at first Syrians were, many Syrians were terrified. The idea of, of the risks were so high, the army was so strong, the security forces were so strong. There had been this memory of what happened in Hama, of tens of thousands of people being killed, many who had nothing even to do with politics, um, of this sort of fear of political imprisonment. Every Syrian had, had some story of someone they knew or heard of who had been suspected of political dissent, thrown into a prison and disappeared and tortured and or killed or never heard from again. So the, the risks of going out and voicing um, any sort of protest, of calling for freedom, for, for dignity, for change, for saying, no, we don't like this system, we want something different, where um, people risk their lives when they went out to protest. So um, so the, the premise that you just read was that in this authoritarian space, there was a certain degree in which it was hard to access what Syrians really thought about politics because people were so afraid to speak openly. And 2011 opened a space to access people's experiences, their viewpoints, their stories of the past, as well as their stories of that moment. So I began interviewing Syrians um, because I wanted to know their views and I wanted to know their stories and I wanted to know their experiences. And I was frankly too afraid to go inside Syria and do those interviews with Syrians myself because the risks were so high, having frank conversations about politics. So I began interviewing Syrians who had left the country and I began in 2012. And essentially I've been interviewing Syrians ever since um, throughout the Middle East during many trips and also through Europe. And now I'm even doing interviews over remotely. Um, so I just did an interview a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago and I'm planning a, another one. And I've done you kind of gathered what I think is almost a kind of oral history archive of um, everyday folks of different walks of life talking about their lives. 
And from that, I have um, tried to write various different academic papers based on this interview material. And the, the article you began referencing um, is, 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 uh, was one of my, my first um, that tried to take a theme that I've heard again and again in nearly every conversation I've had with Syrians about how the role of fear in their experience of politics and how fear was a part of authoritarian stability and how going out and participating protest was, as people say, breaking the barrier of fear, that people had to overcome, surmount, work through fear in order to participate in protest. And then their experiences of fear have evolved since then. Um, people's fear of displacement, their fear of, of losing touch with um, their country, their fear of, a, of an unknown future, their fear of dying in war. So this article tries to bring together different Syrian narratives about their lives and look at how fear has evolved over time and how fear has sort of infused their experience of politics. And all authoritarians know this, um, that the playbook is very clear. <laughs> Uh, it's not just in the Middle East, but we have some recent experience even in the U.S. Um, with this. Um, and so fear is a really effective tool uh, to, to control people. Um, and so the, the, the Syrian diaspora, so the millions of people that left Syria, I would imagine, right, mostly into Europe? Um, no. So... So uh, the if the population of Syria before the war was estimated at about 22 million, something like 13 million Syrians are displaced. Um, the majority are internally displaced. 6.57 million Syrians are displaced, but still in, inside the country. About 5.6 million um, Syrians are refugees in the Middle East. The largest number are in Syria, about, or sorry, excuse me, in Turkey. About 3.6 million Syrians are refugees in Turkey. Nearly a million in Lebanon, something like 650,000 in Jordan. Um, and there are about a million Syrians who've made it to Europe. The largest number are in Germany, but in other countries as well. But overwhelmingly people are still, refugees are still in the countries on Syria's borders, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan primarily, with other numbers in Iraq and Egypt and elsewhere in North Africa. But millions, yes. Yeah, so so you continue this interview process and it's really good laboratory. <laughs> there are people going to different countries, different cultures, trying yeah. to assimilate into different cultures, may have different expectations, perhaps they view Syria differently. So, so what sort of differences do you see in this refugees responses based on where they actually ended up yeah no it, it's it really is something of a laboratory and that there's there's tremendous variation so in the countries um in in the middle east turkey jordan lebanon primarily um most syrians do not have any stable legal permanent residency rights they're not regarded as refugees they're regarded as guests um uh which means people feel tremendously precarious will they be forced back and deported or not. Um, most Syrians are working in the informal economy um, where they have typically lower wages, unsafe conditions, um, no recourse. If a boss suddenly says you're fired, 
you can't do anything about it because you're working illegally, you know, in, in jobs that, that locals don't want for the most part and, and pay the lower wages. Um, many are living in really indecent housing. There are you know, thousands uh, of children who are not in, in work. So some people are, are, have made their established their lives. In Turkey, there's a, a new Syrian sort of bourgeoisie. There are something like 10,000 firms now founded by Syrians in Turkey. So there's a lot of business life and so forth. But a lot of people are are are, are really suffering um, economically, legally, um, and, and with all the psychological, personal ramifications of that kind of instability, which is why Syrians who have been able have many have have tried to get to Europe. So we had in 2015 those scenes of people risking their lives crossing the Mediterranean in rubber boats to try to get to Europe where they could have legal and economic and educational opportunities for themselves and for their children. Um, in Europe, typically um, there people have been able to get Syrians have been able to get asylum. Um, maybe even a path to citizenship. Um, kids are in school. Social welfare states have given people opportunity to learn to learn the language, to just focus on learning the language, obtaining schools, obtaining um, sort of a, uh, it's the, the what they need to move on um, professionally, vocational training, various educational opportunities. It's still tremendously difficult. I've talked to so many Syrian professionals, for example, who had a degree in engineering or accounting or pharmacy or something in Syria, and the struggle to get those qualifications recognized in in Europe, um, and of course, obtain the any new training and language capacity to resume work in their professional field is an enormous mountain. And some have climbed it and are working in their profession and are incredibly amazing. And many, um, depending on also their stage of life, what generation they are and how old and their capacity to reinvent themselves, uh, many are, are, are not able to do that. And it's, it's very heart-wrenching to see and um, a lot of those folks, you know, are just incredibly invested in their children and think, well, I've I've sacrificed my, my this part of my identity and myself, but my children might have a, a better future. And this is the place in the world where they're best able to go on. So you have incredible variation in the context where people are in terms of legal rights, economic opportunity, educational opportunity. Um, something else that I found very also interesting in a paper I didn't send you, but maybe I, I will, is um, on the, the socioeconomic uh, and class dimensions of all of this. Um, there's a, a wonderful article by a, a, um, a scholar of refugee studies in the UK that's titled, I went as far as my money could take me. And that very much applies to many Syrians I've met as well, that it, first of all, to get out of Syria, you need a certain amount of resources. Now the borders are closed. Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon have largely closed their borders. You need to be able to pay a smuggler to get you out and perhaps pay at every single checkpoint within Syria that you pass. So you need a certain amount of money simply to get out of the country. And then you need money to get from the border, let's say the border of Turkey to Istanbul. And then if you want to get to Europe, you have to also have paid between thousands to tens of thousands of smugglers. So there is socioeconomic variation in where people wind up, where they're able to get there. And, and it's there are exceptions, but the the poor you are probably the further the, the least far you're able to go. So um it's been a more middle middle class folks maybe who got themselves to, to Europe. So there are class dimensions of where people wind up. 
And then there are different class dynamics of what they experience where they are, depending on um, educational opportunities and the role of the state as a host state in helping um, refugees or asylees get on with their lives. Um, so there's, I think there's, there's very much a laboratory of, of a tremendous amount of variation that we will see in the future, almost a class class remaking of the Syrian diaspora, where people started out before 2011 and where they wind up now as a sort of intersection of the resources they had and the environment in which they settled. So the, the one million that ended up at, um, in OECD countries, hmm. uh, I noticed that there is a significant variation. There is only about 20,000 that came to the US. Germany seems to have taken a lion's share of that one million, about half a million, I thought. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, are these due to country-specific policies, or is this due to the economic constraints that they were in? I mean, it's it been political policies. So um, so it was, I mean, in, in 2015, the sort of summer of migration or what came to be called the European refugee crisis or what, what we call the refugee crisis, not realizing this is the European refugee crisis, the Middle East and the experiencing refugee crisis long, long before then. Um, you know, it was uh, that there had long been boats of, of refugees trying to get from North Africa or the Middle East to, to Europe and um, often from, from Libya or Tunisia or, or Egypt to, to Italy, but a shorter route was from Turkey to, uh, to Greece. That meant shorter being safer and being less expensive. And when Macedonia changed its border policy such that people coming from Turkey and arriving at Greece would be able to enter on, walk through the Balkans and, and get in this op brief opening and get to Northern Europe, um, it encouraged large numbers and a whole smuggling industry opened up to take advantage of demand um, carrying, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands to Europe. So it, there was a, a crisis of, of hundreds of thousands of people coming and walking through the Balkans. If we remember these scenes from 2015, people walking through and facing tear gas at the borders and then, you know, uh, hundreds uh, being squashed in a trailways stations and so forth. And that was when Angela Merkel in, in summer 2015 made this sort of historic announcement that she would allow Syrians, um, if they made it to Germany, to um, to be able to apply for asylum. And that overruled the, the, the EU policy at the time that, that asylum seekers were supposed to seek asylum in their first country of entry, which would typically be Southern Europe. So you enter Greece, you have to stop in Greece and apply for asylum and so forth, or Italy. And um, that called the Dublin Protocol, Angela Merkel basically announced that she would waive that for Syrians. If they could make it to Germany, they could apply for asylum in Germany. So you had hundreds of thousands of Syrians chanting to Germany, to Germany, to Germany. So it was a political choice made by the government that um, German, but of course, on the basis of both assessing the humanitarian need of, of people fleeing war and having nowhere to go and a humanitarian, I think a, a risky political move and humanitarian um, gamble by, by the chancellor saying that Germany should, and also with, in light of Germany's own history, that Germany should be a light unto other nations and seek 
and, 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 and offer safe haven to these refugees that no other country wanted. But also economically, many believe that you know, Germany was looking at had an aging population with relatively low you know, fertility rates. That was just a matter of time before the Germany's economy also needed new workers and new taxpayers. And it would end up, the gamble was that this would be difficult at first, you know, a million people who don't speak the language, who have various levels of skills, who need to have clothing and housing and become integrated. This is a really big risk. And of course, there's uh, many on the right in Germany vehemently oppose this and this give a boon to right wing movements like the AFD. Um, but the, the, the gamble was if the state dedicates funds to integration, to education and the society comes together, this gamble will pay off. And and most of the analyses, every analysis I've read at this point says the gamble was a total success. That over half of, of, of refugees who came in 2015 in Germany are now taxpayers and economically self-sufficient. That children are completely fluent in, 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 in German and well-integrated in schools. I saw a survey that said something like 80% of, of kids who came as refugees um, now say that their sense of belonging is to Germany. Um, so economically, politically, the fears that this would lead to terrorism and violence and crime have, have totally proven empty. Um, so it was a political decision on part on an economic, but also a humanitarian basis. And I hope it, it sends a message to the world that, um, re that, that refugees can be, um, absolutely contributing members of society and all can benefit by by um, by opening doors to more refugees and asylum seekers and i hope that more americans hear that message too because the number of of syrians that the united states has resettled something like 22,000 compared to the numbers 3.6 syrian refugees in turkey nearly 800,000 in germany something like 22,000 in the united states I would hope many in the United States hear those numbers and feel a sense of shame. We can do so, so, so much more and it will benefit people desperate to start life again and have a sense of safety for themselves and their children. And it can benefit this country too. That's my scientific yeah. opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, obviously execution requires good leadership. Yes. And uh, if you're suffering from a lack of leadership, uh, we can hope for good policies, but they're not going to come. Uh, Germany is clearly uh, sort of a unique uh, OECD country in that respect. Um, so as I want to go into another paper, a recent paper that you have, uh, Mobilizing from Scratch, yeah. large-scale collective action with the pre-existing organizations in the Syrian uprising. So we're talking about the 2011 uprising here, right? Yeah. So you say core social movement research argues that large-scale challenges to authority build upon pre-existing organization and civil society resources. How do dissenters mobilize masses in, um, in these settings given curtailment of civil society, autonomous associations scale, uh, scarcely exist, and norms discourage trust more than encourage it? So, this is sort of an initial condition problem. <laughs> uh, people understand something needs to be done, uh, but nobody wants to be sort of the first group um, starting it, right? 
And so, so, so what do we understand from sort of the social, uh, social research, how these things actually get going? Yeah, I mean, so there's an entire field of social movement studies that tries to answer precisely this question that uprisings and revolutions and mass protest movements are, are rare. And we have the you know, classic collective action problem that everybody would benefit if we came together to achieve some public good. Maybe it's climate change or it's you know, good governance or something. But most people have rational, you know, self-interested actors have every incentive to just sit at home and let other people do the work and go out, especially risk their time or even risk their lives to go out and protest. So we shouldn't expect protests because rationally people will free ride on others and protest never happens. So the entire field of social movement studies tries to resolve this and say, well, we do know that protests happen and even uprisings and revolutions happen. Um, what explains that if rationally we should expect people to stay home? So a whole, uh, there's been many studies that, that argue that when social movements, big social movements happen, there are some pre-existing, what some call kind of indigenous infrastructure that might not even be political organizations, but some sort of social institutions that bring people together, that create networks so people know each other, um, they can communicate, they trust each other, they have the capacity to act collectively, and that under certain circumstances, these get sort of translated and mobilized into vehicles of dissent. And the classic example of this is in the um, American Civil Rights Movement, so the network of African-American churches, primarily also African-American colleges, NAACP chapters, that built entire networks. They were these sort of organizational resources that weren't necessarily used for protest, but there were leaders and there were members and there were communication networks and there was all the potential such that as the civil rights movement began, that got mobilized and in the, you know, uh, the bus boycotts of the 1950s, churches and church communities played a big role in helping get those off the ground, sustaining them and so forth. So there's established over the years, I think really in light of, of some, the, the research that's been done about the civil rights movement, an almost assumption that if you're gonna get mass scale protest, you can look backwards and find that there was these pre-existing networks or institutions. Maybe these days it means even Facebook networks or something, but people are already networked and connected so that when a protest seems like it comes out of nowhere, like in the Arab Spring, for example, you can look back and say, oh no, there were these pre-existing resources. So in this article, I tried to challenge this idea a bit from the Syrian situation. So given everything that we discussed earlier about how authoritarian the Syrian situation was, that there was a single party, that there were informants everywhere, that people were afraid to speak. There was no space for independent civil society, for associations, unions, clubs. I mean, Syrians always like to say you had to get permission from the security forces for four people to meet together. You had to get permission from the security forces in order to have a wedding. Like There was no space for people to come together, yet tens of thousands of people walked, got out into the streets chanting, dancing, calling in unison um, for, for change. So this article tries to sort of look at the processes by which people can come together and mount really large scale protest, 
even when those pre-existing resources are are pretty are pretty scant. Um, and again, this this work, as the others I've been discussing, all really build on the interviews that I've done with Syrians. Um, I know this is not the only source of of data, and it's not a perfect source of data, but everything that I've been been doing over these years has said, what can we learn about social science from people's narratives from their stories. And of course, interviews are difficult. People might, you know, want to present themselves in a certain way. Their memories might be flawed. What they tell a foreign researcher might be different than what actually happened. But I've tried to sort of triangulate and use lots of different stories to, to, to think about what they might, what insight they provide on social processes um, that can teach us something we didn't know before. Yeah, I was thinking also, Wendy, that as you were talking, so I grew up in southern part of India. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is there's potentially a cultural and conditioning effect on protest. So the place that I grew up, um, it doesn't take much to start a protest. I mean, <laughs> they, they, will, they will shut the whole state down if somebody calls somebody else a bad name or something, right? Um, you know, the 25 million people, they have 50 million different opinions. They fiercely debate. It's always protest. I mean, you know, you, ca you can predict with very high, uh, very high confidence <laughs> the protest is going to start. So, so I wondered, you know, it is, is it a conditioning effect in the sense that, you know, people sort of get used to it as opposed to something that's sort of need to start from scratch? I mean, it's a it's a good question. I mean, there's there's a conditioning effect. Um, I mean, my own bias as a political scientist that is is that it's 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 political more than than cultural. That in a political environment of a of a very of a domineering authoritarian state, which um, and we were talking about fear earlier, in which fear is so effective because you both police society and you get society to police itself, and people are extremely afraid of of um, you know, it's funny. I was just just last night with a friend who who lived in Syria for several years, um, even as a foreigner, and she was saying she remembers parties in the mid two thousands where people were literally, you know, people were literally afraid to say the name Bashar al Assad because if you said Bashar al Assad, people would ask, "Why are you talking about Bashar al Assad?" And she recalled being at a party in which somebody once said something about Bashar al Assad, and everybody started looking at their watches, saying. I got to get out of here. I just got to leave. And, and you were afraid that somebody might report you or you would be afraid that you would be reported for not reporting. I mean, the degree of fear, which I see primarily as a political structure and strategy of rule, but does become a culture to the degree it becomes so internalized. It becomes a you're part of who you are, how you interact with others. Um, so that, so that, Part of the mystery of, of, of Syria, then to go back to that first article, was to how people overcame that degree of fear to go out and protest. Um, but yes, you have a very different environment and attitude towards what it means to engage politically at, at all than what you described in your in your hometown. And it can be very interesting political study to, to go back and even to think about where you're from and say, has it always been like that? How did this come to be? Um, what what explains that kind of an attitude towards protests such that people defend themselves, speak their minds, and don't feel these inhibitions to claim what they think is right, as opposed to other places when people are conditioned to um, 
just sort of, you know, you duck down your head because the, the costs of opening your mouth are just higher than anything you could possibly gain. Yeah, I mean, the scariest thing about this, Wendy, is that um, you can institute something like this. Um, not, it doesn't take a long time, you know. It, I mean, we could slip down a, a path, a, a autopath, some authoritarian leader takes power and, and use fear a, as a way to say, you know, you can do that or you cannot say that. And it has sort of a, I think you talk about um, cascading another paper, but in different contexts, but it has cascading effects on the entire population, right? You, you sort of take cues from maybe your friends, your colleagues, and once you set the initial conditions to some level, then it can, it can filter through the population pretty quickly. It's not like, you know, <laughs> we have hundreds of years of democracy and we, you know, we have a stable system but I fear that it is somewhat unstable in any part of the world. I agree. I agree. You know, that's what I did. It can happen here. It can it can happen. It can happen anywhere. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And even I think I mean, it's different. The issue of fear is different than the issue of misinformation. But things that we're seeing here now in terms of fake news and, you know, misinformation about COVID even and vaccines, it's it's tremendous how how um, quickly it can spread, how far it can spread, how it can take hold, how many people can come to believe something. Um, so uh, yeah, this, it's a basic manipulation of, of, of people's um, ideas and their attitudes and their way of being. And uh, yeah, I agree, it's fragile. It's very frightening. Yeah. Hope, hope uh, we won't get there. So, yeah. So you have, you have another paper that's uh, a different subject. Uh, yes. I remember the so Syrian views on Obama's red line. Yeah. The ethical case for strikes against Assad. Uh, so this is in 2013, nearly two and a half years into the pricing turned war. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad launched a chemical weapons attack that killed more than 1,400 people, including 400 children. And I remember, uh, so Obama had sort of um, a pre-threat. I don't know what the right term would be. You can do it. If you do it, we are going to come get your threat. And they did it. And we did nothing about it, <laughs> it seems to me. Uh, maybe that, that's too different. We did something about it. But so, 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 uh, so talk about what exactly happened. What was sort of the Obama administration's logic uh, to, to get the outcome, uh, which appears... Um, at the end, it appears not a bad outcome, but 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 what is the thought process? What is the logic? Yeah, so I mean, the the, the story goes that um, uh, I mean, in, in general, Barack Obama did not want to get involved in what he saw as a quagmire in 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 Syria or other countries. You know, he, we know that he was sort of elected in this idea of getting us out of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, not of getting into new wars, but had said, and some people said it was maybe that it was something he later regretted saying it slipped out of his mouth in 2012 as, as, as the violence was getting quite horrific in Syria, saying something like, well, if we start seeing some chemical weapons move around, that would be a red line for us as a way of saying, okay, maybe you can kill civilians in other ways, but chemical weapons, these are internationally banned. That is, don't cross that line. 
and Assad did. And he has used chemical weapons many times, but the most sort of large scale attack was in August 2013 with those horrific casualties, as you said. Many of us you know, still have our images of, of the body bags and people foaming at the mouth and of, of that of absolutely horrific, uh, over a thousand killed. Um, so then began some sort of uh, several weeks of rapid fire politics. If many of us can take us back to 2013 and there was a question, Will the U.S. have a military strike on Syria or not? Um, and um, it and it was debated. And uh, at some point, Barack Obama kicked it to the Congress and said, "Congress, you know, I I don't want to carry out an act of war without approval from the Congress." And if you look at opinion polls from that time, it was enormously unpopular. Most Americans said, we do not want to have a military strike on Syria. It's not our problem. We don't want to go down some road. We don't want another Iraq. So we want nothing to do with it. And um, and that's where the U.S. was headed when essentially Russia offered an out and said and made, a, made an offer of a chemical weapons deal in which they said they could work with Assad, Russia would work with Assad and the United States, and Assad would agree to get rid of his chemical weapons stockpile, and there'd be no military strike. And this seemed like an out. The Obama administration could say, we succeeded, we're getting rid of all these chemical weapons, and without a military strike or any military intervention or getting dragged into a quagmire. So I was one of apparently a minority at the time that was actually in favor of a U.S. military strike. Because for me, the issue was never only chemical weapons per se. It was the ongoing atrocities of this dictator who was killing his, his own people with many different means. And to say it was all about chemical weapons, it was essentially sending us at a green light of, uh, okay, just don't use chemical weapons, but you can use all these other ammunitions, were, which were equally horrible. I mean, especially these barrel bombs that were you know, basically filling a, 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 um, a, a dumpster filled of improvised explosives of the, and they flatten entire neighborhoods. So, um, and mass scale torture and many other ways of killing civilians. And for me and, and, and many Syrians that opposed the Assad regime, that a U.S. military strike could have changed the equation of the war. It could have sent the message that dictators cannot get away with these atrocities. There's some accountability. There's some price to be paid. Um, and it could have put pressure on Assad that up until then was basically doing whatever he wanted without any any consequences. And then after then, even more so did whatever you want without, without consequences. So it could have it could have put some pressure. At the same time, nobody was talking about American boots on the ground. I mean, there, there were contingency plans as simple as the US bombing um, runways for planes in Syria. So Syrian planes couldn't get off the ground. Something that could send a message, that could create some sort of deterrence, that could perhaps pressure Assad to engage more seriously in ongoing political processes to negotiate with the opposition. Um, but that was that was not that was not done. There was a kind of face-saving gesture, although Assad went on to use chemical weapons again after 2013 and even after the chemical weapons deal. And the U.S. largely ceded the Syrian space to Russia to kind of uh, do whatever it wanted. And Russia then became involved in 2015 with its air force um, bombing 
um, opposition strongholds on the part of the of the Assad regime, and the Assad regime has slowly reconsolidated control, won back territory that had slipped from its grasp, and looks like it is there for the foreseeable future. With over a million Syrians dead, the country in shambles, tens of thousands missing, and as we said, more than half the population displaced, and war crimes and crimes against humanity that that unfolded on our watch with everyone in the world just just watching and not doing much of anything to to stop. So this article brings together Syrian views that of the Syrians who voiced support for US military intervention, not because they like the idea of imperialists coming and bombing their country, but because of a sense of total desperation that there was nothing else um, that could be done to protect civilian lives and and um, and hold some kind of accountability with this dictator. The Syrian people tried. They went out in, in droves and risked their lives to protest, but they were largely abandoned by the international community as this event symbolizes. Yeah, the, the counter, Wendy, would be that our record of solving problems with war mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, hasn't been good. Um, in, in, in any context, really. Um, and so there is a more sort of fundamental question, which is, mm-hmm. we're sitting in 2021 now. Um, why do these people exist <laughs> around the world? Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a puzzling thing, um, isn't it? I mean, we are in modern times, at least, so to speak, but we have somebody in North Korea, we have somebody in Russia. I mean, why do these people exist? Uh, and we have people like this being elected in big democracies, which is even more fascinating, uh, fascinating concept. So, so I want to finish up with sort of related, uh, you know, one of the paper, Religion and Mobilization in the System Uprising and War. Mm-hmm. So yes, what does what role does religion play in mobilization in general? But I want to also ask the question: Does religion play a role in this authoritarian um, leaders that we find around the world? Um, personally, I would not exaggerate the role of of religion, at least in in in, in the Syrian case. So this was a, a book chapter that I read that I wrote for an encyclopedia about. Um, the, an Oxford handbook about, about politics and Muslim society. So religion was the theme, so I engaged with it. But that's not at all because I would, one would myself uh, designate religion as, some, as a really important factor. I see these, these struggles primarily about politics, about power. Religion um, can be manipulated and could be used. Um, in, 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 in situations of, of dire need, people might turn back to religion for some sense of solace and hope when there's nothing else to find hope in. Um, it is a it can be a part of a social cleavage that especially dictators can manipulate to turn people against each other, to create suspicions from one group against another, to divide and conquer so they stay up on top. But um, but the, the question of how, how, how we get these people, these incredibly bad and brutal rulers, I think the historic reasons of how people um, 
are able to seize power, how a regime begins. And in Syria, it was these coups and instability and, and this one person being able to rise to the top that then build an entire system to be able to sustain. And in political science, there's a sort of robust literature about authoritarian stability or duration um, that looks at how authoritarian regimes that are that fail to deliver economic prosperity that are fundamentally degrading, that fail to deliver uh, dignity and rights, how they're able to no less sustain themselves through some combination of violence and repression, of co-optation and corruption, of using institutions to divide and weaken oppositions, and, um, and in the case of Syria, yeah, brute, utter terror and violence and, and, and destroying the whole country if that's what it takes to stay on top. Um, and of course, international powers and sometimes their direct support or indirect support or turning the other way also create an environment. So I think there are lots of different factors, not only in how regimes come to be, but more importantly, how they're able to sustain themselves and fragment and weaken um, or co-opt those forces that otherwise might succeed in over in overthrowing them. Yeah, it seems to me, you know, there, there are some attributes that allow allows one to maybe create a predictive model hmm. where an authoritarian leader might might uh, might come, right? Uh, you know, um, I, I would imagine egalitarian, um, well-functioning democracies with free market systems, less religious appear to be um, less likely to create those types of leaders and the opposite might be more likely. Um, I don't know, I, I'm just speculating. I, I don't know anything about the data. But I want to ask you one final question, Wendy. So, so you talked a lot of Syrians over a long period of time now. Um, before, you know, by some miracle, Syria returns to normalcy. Um, we have a well-functioning democracy, we have free market system, um, you know, all of the things that we expect a, a good country to have. Let's say Syria returns to that, that state. Do you think this um, displaced Syrians, uh, I'm thinking people who went outside the country, um, I don't know how many, how many are they? Like six, seven million, right, uh, who went outside? Uh, what is their feeling? Will they will they return to Syria if Syria becomes normal? Yeah, I mean, the, and it's interesting because in the Syrian case, that return to normal that never existed, so it's creating <laughs> creating some some optimal situation. Yes, I think that were there a functioning democracy, um, pol the political guarantees of safety of rights of accountability, of political participation, absolutely. I think there would be millions of Syrians who, who would return. Um, and I think that most Syrians it, right now do not see that in the foreseeable future. And I do not see it in the foreseeable future. So um, were it to happen, yes, absolutely. I think that many would return. Um, it does not seem to be to be happening. Yeah, my understanding is that you, you probably have more insights into this. My understanding is that it's a pretty highly educated population. At least it used to be fairly highly educated population, right? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so people who went out are highly skilled. Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And what's interesting about this growing diaspora is now people are gaining all sorts of new skills. I mean, you have a, um, what the, the kinds of education and training, learning new languages. I mean, you had a, a highly educated population and now you have, well, while many are, especially in the countries in the Middle East, there was fear of a lost generation of kids who aren't going into school and people who aren't using their skills because they're in sectors of the economy that are um, low wage and and um, and very difficult and not exercising even the training they come with. There are many, especially who've made it to more developed places, are, are gaining all sorts of new new skills. Besides the fact that given a space of political freedom, they're also you know, discovering new things about themselves and creating new initiatives and art and radio stations and, and organizations and a flourishing of what people can do when they have not only the right economic conditions, but also the right freedoms. Any basic freedoms, there's just a total renaissance of, of what people are creating and the creativity and the resourcefulness. And I think for many Syrians, there's a feel, a sense of, of, um, of real sadness that they couldn't exercise those talents in their own country because the political conditions don't allow it. Um, that's that's the sad reality of, of authoritarianism. Yeah, hundred years from now, we'll look back, we won't look back, but the next generation will look back and say, those were dark ages. <laughs> I don't know what those guys were doing. Yeah. They, were, they were destroying the planet and they had all these people in these countries doing all sorts of stuff that we can't even imagine, right? So it's truly sort of a, a dark ages of modern times. We, we, are, we are living through it. We just don't see it. Yeah. I mean, for me, there, there are many, many dark spots in our times. And I would encourage, hope all of your listeners pay attention to Syria as, as one of them, that even if it's not in the news to the same degree it was in past years, Syrians are still suffering. There's absolute hyperinflation and economic crisis and a COVID crisis within the country. Um, uh, there are still tens of thousands of people who were arrested and people don't know if they're alive or dead. There are refugees who are suffering tremendously. So I would encourage your listeners to not turn away from Syria. This is um, uh, a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions and it's happening now. And none of us can say that we didn't know um, and in whatever capacity people have to donate time or money or um, mental energy to act in some sort of solidarity, uh, it's the least um, the least we all can do. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Wendy. Thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.